Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church Podcast, where you can hear our Sunday morning sermons in audio form and take them wherever you go. A reminder that if you want to watch the entire service, our services are available on our YouTube channel linked in the podcast notes. We would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast so that new sermons come into your feed as soon as they are available, and you can do this using your favorite podcasting app. We would love it if you would help to support the missions and ministries here at Beach Grove through your tithes and your offerings. A donation link is also linked in the notes below. And lastly, find us on Facebook and Instagram to follow along with all the fun things happening at Beach Grove, whether you live in Suffolk, Virginia or not. We hope you enjoyed this week's message, and please don't forget to share it with others. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. The second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten the belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. Lord, that as we enter this time, as we enter this series, Lord, that we would reflect within ourselves on what makes us Christian, what makes us Methodist. Lord, what draws us towards a relationship with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin our time today with, with a question. I just want you to think about it for a second. Okay? Why are you Methodist? Why are you United Methodist? What brought you to this church? Or, or really, I guess, more broadly and generally, because what brought you to this church was probably someone bringing you here. But why do you stay in this church? What about the United Methodist denomination really draws you in? And you may be thinking to yourself, well, pastor, that seems like a little bit of a loaded question. I don't know that I would say I'm United Methodist. I think I would say I'm Christian. And fair enough, friends, I invite you to consider that one are the same, that they are one in the same. You may not be a member of this church, but still you have decided to come here. Still something has drawn you into this space. And even maybe beyond a friend or family member bringing you, something has drawn you into this building a United Methodist building. And if someone has drawn you in here, something drew them in there. And so again, why are you United Methodist? We often wonder to ourselves what differentiates us from, say, the Baptist churches or the Catholic churches or the Episcopals or the Lutherans or any number of churches within our area, within our world. And here in our denomination... We have carved ourselves as one of the largest denominations in the Christian faith. And so what is it that makes us United Methodist? 
Now, I could very easily give just some long-winded, great, long theological words that I love to do all of the time, but I will spare you my theological education, and instead I will bring us into a world that helps us to learn and grow together as we seek to make the Bible real for each and every one of us. You see, the igniter, I'll call him, of the Methodist movement, not the creator because we don't really need that in our world right now, but an igniter of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he was trying to identify what made these specific people in the groups that he had formed, what made them Methodist. And actually the term Methodist was used mockingly at, uh, at Christ College where John Wesley attended school in Oxford. Um, right, Oxford? I don't, oh gosh. Christ College. And so anyways, so they, they called them Methodist because of the methods that they used to do all these things. They had very particular methods. But John Wesley, when he was going around America and he is now beginning to form these small groups and form these groups of people who are organizing themselves around, John Wesley wanted to know what, what makes these people Methodist and even more broadly, what makes these group of Methodists Christian? Right? If we're going to identify United Methodism or Methodism or Wesleyanism as an ideology in the church, what makes Methodists Christian? Right, a very important question. We could ask the same thing of what, is make, what makes a Baptist Christian? What makes a Catholic a Christian? What makes an Episcopalian a Christian? We could ask the same question of each and every one of those. And for the most part, it would probably devolve down to, well, we love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And yes, we believe that important, but Wesley sought to dive a little bit deeper. That as we thought about the characteristics of a Methodist, to idealize this standard of living and what it looked like. And so in response to much of the apathy that Wesley got from the, uh, from the Anglican Church, the Church of England, he sought to come out and say, look, these are people who have organized themselves as Methodists, and these are characteristics. These are qualities that they carry with them at all times. <clears throat> these are not beliefs, so to say, because the belief is all the same. We believe in the one true God present in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we believe in the abundance of God's love. And so what does that mean for how we live out our faith in the world? And so John Wesley sought to say, these are the five things that a Methodist, these are five characteristics of a Methodist. And in writing to this fledgling movement, he wanted to instruct them on what it meant to be a Christian in their community as one who is identified as a Methodist. He wrote that these are principles and practices of our sect. These are the marks of a true Methodist. They are Christians, not in name only, but in heart and life. Moving, again, beyond belief into practice. And then over, So over the next five weeks, we're going to dive into each of these characteristics. It's actually uh, a book. I, will, um, I didn't bring it with me today, but I'll bring it in next week. It's a little green book. It's by Steve Harper. It's called The Five Marks of a Methodist. And to me, it helps us to understand more deeply who we truly are and the lives we are truly called to live. And so we start out today, we look at um, Wesley's, the character of a Methodist, the, the writing that Wesley puts all of these together. And we see that Wesley says, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit given to them 
One who loves the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. So today we look at the first mark, the first mark of character of a Methodist. And the first mark of a Methodist is a Methodist loves God. Again, I'm just lobbing softballs at y'all. A Methodist loves God. Now, it may seem like a softball. But again, this is no ordinary love. This is no ordinary concept of love because you see, when we look at the word love in our human understanding, we look at it in a certain way. And you know what? The same thing happens in Scripture. And so as we look at what it means for a Methodist, what it means that a Methodist loves God, we look and we see and we learn from this Scripture, from John 21, and we see the way this back and forth plays out between Jesus and Peter. All right, the scripture invites us into this interaction. And you know what? We may, we may actually look at this. And then the translation that you all have, the New Revised, so you all have the New Revised Standard Version in your bulletins. And you'll see there as it goes on, it says that Peter was hurt. Right? And in some translations, you'll see Peter was angry. And I think when we look and we read this scripture, we think I like the word anger more than I like the word hurt. Because to me, I would have been very irritated, just like those kids when I kept asking them. (laughs) But here we go. Peter was angry in the manner that he was hurt because of what is actually happening behind the scenes. You see, when I'm teaching about the importance of scripture in the church, I teach about the importance of understanding the fullness of scripture. And that is that in some way, shape, and form, we have to connect with the very essence of Scripture. Therefore, you cannot get lost in one interpretation of the Bible. You cannot solely read one interpretation of the Bible. Why? Because we have to understand where the Bible comes from. And this is the verse that I use. Because in the Greek, in the Greek, just in the just in the Greek of the scriptures, there are four different words that are used for love. That's not even all of the Greek words that are that there are for love. In the entirety of the Greek language. But just in the New Testament alone, there are four Greek words for love. You have phileo, which is like a friendly friendship type of love, right? We think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. We have storge, which is a natural or instinctual love. Think of like a familial love, that parental love, that sibling love, that child, uh, that child parent love. We have eros, which is a romantic love. This is a a love that is found between two partners. And then, of course, the most important one of all that we focus on is agape love. This is an unconditional and selfless love. So here you go. Now let's read this scripture again, except let's put in the words for love that take place in this scripture. So what happens right off the bat? We see that Jesus and Peter or Jesus and the disciples are having breakfast. It is the early morning of the day. Gosh, I hope they had some coffee because this would have been a very hard conversation to track. And we have Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? And we have Peter respond, of course, I love you, Lord. And to us, we think, okay, cool. Peter loves Jesus. Well, not so fast, friends, because when Peter asks, do you love me? Peter actually says, do you agape me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. Not fillet. Let's, there's an O at the end of that. So Jesus asks again, Peter, do you agape me? And again, Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. Finally, coming to the last time, 
where now we look and we see where Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do we understand why Peter is hurt now? You see, Peter is struggling to conceptualize the nature of love that we are called to give to God. And in that, Jesus, Peter thinks he's doing the right thing, right? Peter thinks it's like, Jesus, I love you like a brother. You are like my dearest and greatest friend. Clearly, I love you more than, the fam- more than my family because I left them to come and be with you. I love you more than my job because I dropped my nets back at the lake shore and I came and I followed you. I love you like a brother. And Jesus is like, I understand that. But I need you to love me like more than a brother. Right? We see this understanding as Jesus is teaching about love over and over again. If we turn our Bibles back to Matthew 22, we look and we see the Pharisees ask Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? John Wesley copies this when he's talking about the character of a Methodist. You shall agape the Lord your God. Agape becomes the foundation of our faith because of the nature of love that it is. There's nothing to say that the other manners of love, that phileo, that storge, that eros, that any of these other ones are bad manners of love. But to allow the love that we have for God to be identified in one of those ways means something. Why? Because here you go. So Harper notes in his book, he says, unlike the other three words, that is uh, phileo, storge, and eros, unlike those three words, this quality of love, that is agape, is based in the lover and not in the one being loved. Right? It is completely based on the lover and not the one who is being loved. Right, I want you to think about some of your best friends that you've had throughout your life. Are you still best friends with all of them? You probably have some that you've had falling out with. You probably have some that you've just allowed to fall by the wayside as you've gotten older. I want you to think about partners that you've had in your life, people that you have probably loved and you thought you were going to marry, or even maybe people who you married, and then it just ended. I even want you to think about maybe parents, siblings, or those in our society who have rocky relationships with their parents and siblings. You see, each of these loves is based on the relationship that the lover has with the loved one. And it's based on the person who's being loved. The lover can use it transactionally, which I know that that may sound weird, but it's the best word that I can often come up with. And it can be withdrawn. When we say that God loves us, when we say that God agapes us, God is the one doing the work in this situation. And the love that God is offering, the unconditional, the selfless love of God that God is offering to each and every one of us, it's not conditional on anything that we've done. Right? God does not love us because we are children of God. God does not 
love us because we are siblings with God. God does not love us because we have built up a friendship with God. God does not love us for anything that we've done. God inherently and out of the nature of creation loves us. Agape love is unconditional, selfless love of the lover. That means when we think about everything that can happen to us, when we think about our relationship with God, that nothing can shake the foundation of our love for God. It's predicated on nothing other than our innate ability to love. That's it. And that's the manner in which we return that love back to God. We are called to give love the God that has been given to us. Right? When we think of this love in a phileo way, when we think that we might be getting something in return. But we love because God first loved us. And we want to return to God the same love that God gives to us. Unconditional, selfless love. And why is it selfless? Because that helps in the definition and the living out of faith. Harper writes that a great danger in much of contemporary spirituality, Christian or otherwise, is that it keeps the focus on the self, the ego. And the particular thing about egotism is that it will let us believe in God and claim to love God, but always and only on our terms. Right now, let's revisit that scripture again. When Jesus says, or when Peter says, Jesus, I phileo you, what is Peter trying to say? Jesus, I love you. I love you like a brother. And so I love you on the terms that we are brothers. And I know that that may sound weird, but there are conditions within that love. Right? When we focus on this agape love, we take the focus of love off of whether or not the love is reciprocated or even warranted, and we turn it into a love that is unconditionally given. And heads up, the last mark of a Methodist is that a Methodist loves others, so make sure you keep these nuggets in your head for the next month and a half. Don't worry, there will be sermon notes. I got y'all. And so we begin to understand why Peter becomes grieved in this process. Peter so badly wants to tell Jesus, Lord, I love you unconditionally, and he cannot bring himself to do it. To the point that in that recognition, Jesus comes down and says, you know what, Peter? I love you like a brother. And then what does Jesus do with Peter? It's not in this chapter, or it's not in this passage. Jesus entrusts the church to Peter. Jesus entrusts the entire discipleship of all who are to come to Peter. Because as Jesus says in this scripture, you know what? Right now you can put your own belt on. And you can go wherever you want. But someday you're going to have someone else put a belt on you. And they're going to lead you where they want to go. Because, friends, when we look at the love of God, we see the way in which we live into who God calls us to be. Not to be led around on our own, but to know that in our comfort, in our peace, in our strength, and in being guided by God, that we have the ability to wear that belt. The longer that we try and put 
stipulations on the love that we offer to God, the longer that we try and put stipulations on the love that we offer to other people, the longer that we try and put stipulations on agape love, the less agape it looks, and the more restrictions we try and put on other people. The more we distort the image of God, the more we see God as a transactional system of what we want in life rather than who God actually calls us to be. Much like he asked Peter, Jesus asks us, he says, do you agape me? And I know we want to say, Lord, we just want to say, yes, you know that we agape you, Lord, right? We want to be like Peter instead of phileo. We want to say agape because we've seen the tests. We've seen the answers. We know the right one. We know which one to write in. It's like the easiest test in humanity when God says, do you love me? But if we get down deep, have we actually said agape when really we like are actually trying to say something else? Are we trying to bring our own egotism into faith? We say, oh, God, I'll love you when it's easy. I'll love you when everything is going great in life. When everything is happy-go-lucky. When everything feels perfect. But you know what? When stuff starts to suck, I'm out. Or when stuff starts to suck, you need to fix it right away or I'm out. No, our love for God should be similar to God's love for us. Unconditional. Right? We look and we see through scriptures the way in which we have distorted the image of God that is within each and every one of us. And yet, God still loves us. We look and we see the way in which we go about our lives, sometimes not even thinking about it. Sometimes not even acknowledging it, and yet God still loves us. Friends, you don't even need to walk into a church. And here's the crazy thing. Again, we as Methodists believe in provenient grace. You don't even have to reciprocate the love of God for God to love you. God always loves you. Yes, we believe that in some way, shape, or form, we have to acknowledge that love. And so it's upon us as Christians, to see that we are called to love God with the same unconditional, selfless love that God gives us. So what is your answer? Do you truly agape God? Amen.